Okay, the Calvary Road is going to be part three. Hallelujah. It's part three. Cups running over. Revelation chapter 12, verse 11. And they overcame here, that is, the devil and the forces of darkness, and the beast, and the false prophet in the book of Revelation, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. Galatians chapter 2 verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the, in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Psalm 23, the second half of uh, Psalm uh, 23 verse 5, you anoint my head with oil, my cups runs over. Also, Matthew chapter 23, verse 26, what Jesus told the Pharisees. He said, first cleanse the inside of the cup and dish, and that the outside of them may be clean also. And finally, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18 and do not be drunk with wine which is in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Father, as we begin to examine this matter of our cups being filled to brimming over and spilling out to this lost and dying world, I pray, Lord, that you would quicken it to our hearts, Lord God, and uh, seek to apply it to our own lives, Lord, because there's a lost world that is out there hurting, and so often we're just so consumed with self, Lord God, and uh, our thoughts are inward upon us and our problems and not upon you, the problem solver, and especially out in that uh, lost and dying world where people are hurting and desperately need this new wine that we've been talking, that we've been singing about in that last song before uh, going into this service. So I pray, Lord, that you just anoint this message and may it uh, penetrate the hearts of everybody here, including the preacher. And I pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Okay, we've been speaking now for the third Sunday on this new series entitled The Calvary Road. And it's based on a little book that I showed you last week by Roy Hessian entitled The Calvary Road. And I'm also, what inspired me to preach on this was also that quote that I heard from Greg Laurie where he asked, uh, you know, when Greg Laurie was still a young minister, I guess he's an old minister because he's just about the same age as I am. <laughs> Praise the Lord. 
So anyway, when he was a young minister, he'd already made his mark and got to have lunch with Billy Graham. And he asked Billy Graham point blank. He said, if you, uh, if a young, uh, if an old Billy Graham could go to a young Billy Graham, of course, you know, he was equating himself with his ministry at the same stage. Uh, uh, an older Billy Graham would uh, uh, talk to a younger Billy Graham what would he tell him to be preaching on more? And without hesitation, Billy Graham said, I would preach on the cross more because that's where the power is. The power is in the cross. The power is in the blood. Can he say amen to that, brothers and sisters? The power is in the blood. Hallelujah. We sing that all the time. Okay, and the theme verse I chose for this series was Revelation 12, 11. And it's talking about the people that had been martyred for the cause of the gospel during the Great Tribulation. But it says, And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives unto the death. Now, that last phrase there, they didn't love their lives unto the death, that's not necessarily talking about us laying down our lives for the gospel, that is being martyred for uh, the gospel. And believe me, you know, we don't see that going on here, but there's, we're seeing it in other places, especially in Muslim and communist lands. There's also some persecution going on now in India, a place where you would not expect uh, it to be going on, but it is. Okay, in that scripture we see the foundation of the power of the Christian walk in the cross, that is, in the blood of the Lamb, and loving not our lives to death. Okay, that means that we're willing to die to ourselves and our own self-will for the cause of Christ. What we learned last week is that our attitude in life should be the same as Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. When he told his father he was about ready to go to the cross and he didn't want to do it. His flesh shrank back undergoing the agony of being hung there on the cross. But he said, uh, uh, Father, you know, not my will, but yours be done. Okay? So that is, should be also our attitudes in life. Can you say amen to that? Amen. We need to be saying every day, Lord, not my will, but thine be done. This was the attitude of the Apostle Paul when he wrote, I have been crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but what? But Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, in his physical body, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So the Lord Jesus Christ also wanted every one of us to have that same attitude. When he first started talking to his disciples about the fact that he was going to go to Jerusalem and suffer very, a lot of things at the hands of the religious leaders. And you remember good old Peter who just made his great confession, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. 
And Jesus commanded him, said, flesh and blood has not revealed that to you, but my Father in heaven. But then Peter goes around and, uh, you know, after Jesus is talking about going to Jerusalem and uh, being suffering many things and being crucified and uh, rising on the third day, Peter says, oh, Lord, no, never. this is never going to happen to you. And what did Jesus say to him? Get behind me, Satan. You know, you just got a revelation from the Father. Now you're getting a revelation from Satan. So he kind of put Peter in his place. Sometimes we need to be put in our place, right? We get a little bit puffed up uh, at times. You know, we think we know it all. We think we know better than God does. That's what happened to Peter. But right after uh, uh, Jesus uh, rebuked Peter like that, he said in Luke chapter 23, verses, tw uh, I'm sorry, nine, verse 9, verses 23 and 24, <clears throat> He said, then he said to them all, it wasn't just the disciples this time, it was everybody that was around him. Then he said to them all, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily. Remember, I told you, you know, Luke's gospel, you know, the, the three, two other synoptic gospels, Matthew and Mark, don't include that daily, but Luke mentions it and I think that is the key to living this crucified living is you do it every day it's not a one-shot deal and if I can interpolate it a little bit on the uh, Lord's words it's not just every day it's every hour it's every minute and every second in your life because the crucified living is an attitude you don't do it just once or twice you do it all the time. You know, I used to hear the uh, uh, hymn, Blessed Assurance. Blessed Assurance, Jesus is mine. You know, and then there's one line, Praising my Savior, what? All the day long. That's what we need to do. We need to be praising our Savior and living a crucified like life all the day long. It kind of boggled my mind when I was a kid, you know, and I heard that, you know, how can you praise the Lord all day long? But now, you know, the more you walk with him, the more you discover how it's possible. Okay, he needs to take up his cross daily and follow me. Whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Again, that doesn't mean that you're allowing yourself to be martyred for the cause of Christ. It means you lose your life, your self-will, and you give it all to Him. You live by that, not by my will, but thine be done. And finally, I did mention this last week, but uh, I've shared this scripture with you many times before. It's called the Kenosis Passage. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. Let this mind, let this attitude be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery or something to be held onto. He already had equality with God. He was God, but he didn't hold onto it. But he willingly came here to earth. 
He didn't consider it something to be held on to, to be equal with God, but made of himself no reputation. The word there in the Greek is kenao. That's where we get our, the word kenosis passage. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. He emptied himself. Verse 7, made himself no rep reputation. He emptied himself. What did he empty himself of? He emptied himself of his visible glory. That glory was revealed only one time, and that was that the transfiguration of his visible glory, some of his divine attributes, like his omnipresence. When Jesus came here to earth, he lived like a man. He wasn't omnipresent. He wasn't present everywhere, which he had been before when he was still up there in heaven. <clears throat> and his ability, this is the main thing, his ability to act independently as God exclusive of the Father's will. He emptied himself, and the same is, needs to be true of us. We need to empty ourselves of our own self-will. We need to have the same attitude that we need, means we need to think and act like Jesus. Surrender our will to God just as he did. Now today I'm going to cover this message, Cups Running Over. Now, this was uh, the title of uh, uh, Hessian's book, The Calvary Road, for chapter 2. And it comes from the last phrase of Psalm 23, verse 5, of course. My cup runs over. Now, what is David, you know, the, the writer of this psalm, talking about here? Well, Psalm 23 is known as the shepherd song. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And the imagery of a, a, a shepherd tending his flock is what David learned from being a shepherd throughout his early life. Caring for the sheep, and he likens it to our Christian walk. He is the shepherd. I am the good shepherd. We are the sheep. And he takes care of us. And when, you know, he says just before the phrase there, my cup is running over, he said, you anoint my head with oil. Okay? What's that dealing with? Well, a shepherd knows exactly what it's dealing with. Because, you see, during the warmer months of the uh, uh, season, uh, sheep get plagued by all these buzzing egg insects, bzz, you know, around their head and everything. And it annoys them. Sometimes they, you know, shake their head or do something, you know, uh, you know, do whatever they can to get relief from these insects that are plaguing them. So what does a shepherd do? He gets a little oil and he puts it on the sheep's head. And that helps keep the insects away. 
Oil is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. And we need to have that oil of the Holy Spirit anointing our hearts or heads in this case. That is the heads. What does the head speak of? It speaks of your mind. And you're getting plagued with all these thoughts that the enemy is constantly trying to plant in your head. You know, temptations and troubling thoughts. You know, thoughts of worry. We're going to talk about and fear. Other thoughts of envy and things like that. I'm going to talk more about some of these in today's message. But then David goes on and says, my cup runs over. So what is the cup in this imagery? The cup is a picture of the human heart and what can fill it. You know, in the natural, when we fill up cups, we fill up cups with all kinds of things. You know, most prominently in uh, the, the Bible, you talk about filling a cup with water. Water is also a symbol of the Holy Spirit. Or filling it up with wine. Wine is again a symbol of the Holy Spirit. So my personal question to all of you here. What's filling your, the cup of your life? What's filling the heart of your life? Are you, is your heart filled with pride? Is it filled with uh, literal alcohol or drugs? What about lustful thoughts? Or envy or jealousy? Material things and the desire to succeed no matter what the cost may be. Now these are things that, uh, you know, uh, the inspired writer says the world you know, runs after, uh, I think it was Jesus that said, the, these are the things that the world runs after, but not so with us. We're to pursue the things of God. God's desire is to fill up your heart with the Holy Spirit. But before he can fill up the heart, your heart with the Holy Spirit, your heart needs to be emptied out of all those selfish desires. And that's the natural outgrowth of the brokenness that I spoke of last week. Jesus told the Pharisees. Pharisees were really good about trying to correct other people. And they thought that they were religious. They thought they were in tune with God, but they weren't. And Jesus lashed out at him in uh, Matthew chapter 23, what, what call, what's called the seven woes. And this is one of them. Verse 25. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you make clean the outside of the cup and the platter, but inside they are full of extortion and excess. Thou blind Pharisee, cleanse first that which is within the cup and the platter, that the outside of them may be clean also. You know, uh, Andrew Murray is quoted by uh, Hessian in his book, and he gives us a quote that's interesting. He says, Just as water ever seeks and fills the lowest place, 
So the moment God finds you abased and empty, his glory and power will fill in. But your vessel, your cup, must first be emptied of all, out of all the pride and selfishness that you have. Now, David says, my cup runs over. Okay? So it is with the Holy Spirit. He doesn't just want to fill your cup, your heart, with the, his Holy Spirit. He wants it to spill over. Right? All of us have experiences where we have a glass and maybe we're not watching. You know, we turn on the tap water, you know, and uh, fill it up. We're not watching. What happens when it gets full? You know, it spills over. That's what God wants to do with your heart. He doesn't want to just fill up your cup. He wants it to be filled with overflowing. Hallelujah. Overflowing to where? And to whom? He wants our lives overflowing to quench the thirst of a lost and dying world. And he cannot do this until our lives are not just filled, but filled to the brimming over with his Holy Spirit. Now, Hessian illustrates this. The cup is emptied by dying to self and its desires. Hessian writes on page, pages 17 and 18 of his book, People imagine that dying to self makes one miserable. I'm going to die to myself. <laughs> but it's just the opposite. It is the refusal to die to self that makes one miserable. The more we know of death with him, the more we shall know of his life with us. And so more of real joy and real peace. His life will overflow through us to lost souls in a real concern for their salvation. And to our fellow Christians in a deep desire for their blessings. Another thing that uh, Hessian talks about is uh, also not just being emptied of ourself, you know, self-will, self and self-will. But we also need to have clean cups, not dirty. This is interesting here. The only thing that prevents Jesus from filling our cups as he passes by, and that is sin in our lives in one of its thousand forms. Then he states this, and I underlined this, I started, the Lord Jesus does not fill dirty cups. Everybody say that. Jesus does not fill dirty cups. So you need to be clean. Cleanse first the cup. And then the outside will be clean also. The outside of your life. What other people see of you. Anything that springs from self, however small it may be, is sin. And self creeps into uh, our lives so much, you know, and in subtle ways. 
and Hesion has a bunch of examples here. Self-energy or self-complacency in Christian service is sin. Self-pity in trials or difficulties, self-seeking in business or Christian work, self-indulgence in one's spare time, sensitiveness. Some of us are just too sensitive. You know what I mean? Amen? Touchiness. Touchy, touchy, you know. Mm. Resentment and self-defense when we are hurt or injured by others. Self-consciousness, reservedness, worry, and fear all spring from self. And our, all our sin and make our cups unclean. Is he stepping on a few toes right now? I know he stepped on mine. He goes, you know, with this statement that he made there in page 18, he included a little footnote there, which I, you know, read at the, the end of the chapter. And he says, Some may be inclined to question whether it is right to call such things, such as the ones that he just enumerated about self-indulgence and uh, uh, self-pity and uh, worry and fear. Are those really sins, you know? Uh, and, you know, he says, uh, these people say, well, why don't you call them, instead of calling them sins, call them infirmities or disabilities or maybe a uh, temperamental uh, weakness, you know? I worry a lot because it's just part of my temperament. You know what you're doing, brothers and sisters? You're making excuses for yourself. And as long as you make excuses for yourself, you can get free. Hessian says the reverse, you know, if we do so, that get, uh, would be to get us into bondage. But, you know, Hessian says the reverse is true. If these things are not sins, then we must put up with them for the rest of our lives. There is no deliverance. How many of you have got a spirit of fear in your life? How many of you worry too much? You want to be de delivered from those? Oh, I wish I didn't have to worry. Or I, I like what Chuck Smith once said. He said, how can God do it if I don't worry? <laughs> many people have that attitude. Do you want to be free from that spirit of fear? And that spirit of worry? Confess it to God, because believe me, it is sin. You know, some people are a worry wart. You know, they're always worried about everything. I want to tell you, brothers and sisters, I am worried, or I shouldn't really be use that word worry. I am concerned about what is happening in our nation today. But you know something? There's very little I can do about it other than pray. Paul said, be anxious for nothing. In other words, don't worry about anything. What do you do instead? You give it, you pray. He said, but by all... But in all things, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, make your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will rule over your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. The opposite of worry is God's peace. 
You want to have God's peace? Or do you want to worry about things? The way that you do it is you take it to the Lord in prayer and let Him worry about it instead. You know, that's, you know when Dolly and I have, uh, uh, you know, trials and tribulations crop up, you know, I said, well, let's just pray about it. I'm not going to worry about it. I'm going to give it over to God and let Him take care of it. Amen? Well, what about the spirit of fear? How many people struggle with the spirit of fear in their lives? Is that really a sin to have fear in your life? You ever think of it? You think it's a sin? You remember when I uh, gave the, that series of messages on the uh, seven tribes that were in the land of Canaan? That the nation of Israel had to get rid of? And I explained to you that each of those 12 tribes represent things that the enemy uses to defeat us. You start off with the Hittites. What were the Hittites? Who remembers that? The Hittites were the sons of terror. And that represents the spirit of fear in your life. Israel had to get rid of those tribes before they could possess the land of Canaan. And I explained to you, you know, the land of Canaan is not heaven. You know, so often... You know, there's, there's uh, uh, you know, so many people say, you know, well, uh, the land of Canaan is heaven when we get up there. No, the land of Canaan is not heaven. It represents the abundant life that Jesus wants every one of us to have. Jesus said, I have come that they might have life and that they might have that life more abundantly. Jesus wants you to have that abundant life and you can't have the abundant life as long as you've got the spirit of fear in your life. Amen? How many of you know I'm preaching the truth here? Hallelujah. And God promises us deliverance from that spirit of fear. 2 Timothy 1.7 For God has not given us the spirit of fear... Actually, the word there, fear, means timidity. Timothy had the gift of evangelism, but, you know, he was, you know, Paul thought he was being a little bit too timid. He needed to speak the word of God boldly, not worry about what people are going to do to him. So, Paul writes to him and says, God has not given us the spirit of fear, of timidity, but of what? Power, love, and a sound mind. You know what sound means in that case? It means disciplined. God has given us a disciplined mind. But we need to discipline ourselves and say, I am not going to be ruled by that spirit of fear. I'm going to give all things to God. And finally, there's, of course, a... a uh, the Apostle John's uh, statement in 1 John chapter 4, verse 18. There is no fear in love. Sometimes we think fear is the absence of faith. No, fear is the absence of love. There is no fear in love, but perfect love 
perfect, mature, complete love cast out fear because fear involves torment. You ever see somebody or you yourself, you know, you've got fear in your life. What's that fear do to you? It torments you, right? You think God wants you to be tormented? No, he wants you to have that peace of God that surpasses all understanding. He wants to have his perfect love fill up your life. But he who fears has not been perfect. Again, there's that word perfect. What did I say perfect means? It means complete or mature. You don't have a mature love if you're still tormented by fear. And God wants to deliver you from that. So the cure for fear is to become aware of God's love for you. Complete. And make it complete. Now, here's a question for you. Are you a black hole? What do you mean, Cliff, a black hole? I always thought a black hole is where our uh, uh, tax dollars are going. <laughs> but a black hole is something much greater than that. Uh, what is a black hole? Well, you know, I, I, I'm interested in uh, uh, astronomy and cosmology. So I've, I've studied up a, a lot on this subject. There's, you know, there's two types of black holes, you know, in terms of astronomy and co cosmology. You've got a stellar mass black hole, and that uh, used to be an extremely massive star, maybe about 20 uh, times the weight of the sun. And it burns through its uh, uh, hydrogen fuel very quickly, like about 10 million years. That's all. Well, hey, they, they, they say the sun is going to live about a thousand times longer, about 10 billion years, not just 10 million. But it runs out of the hydrogen fuel. The core gets so hot, and then it winds, it, you know, when it runs out of all that fuel, it just collapses in on itself. Some of it will rebound and blow off the outer uh, layers. But all that will be left out there floating in the middle of space is this black hole. And there's also supermassive black holes. Anybody ever heard of a supermassive black hole? If uh, you go outside tonight, look to the south, you know, soon after uh, it gets dark, you'll see the constellation of Sagittarius. You know what that is? That's where the Milky Way is the brightest. This big, because that's where the center of the galaxy. And embedded in that uh, center of the galaxy is a supermassive black hole. About four million times the weight of the sun. And uh, it's been there since uh, you know, the beginning of creation. And the thing is, you know, uh, if stars swirl around that black hole or uh, maybe a planet or some gas or something, whatever comes within reach, it just gobbles it up and it gets even more and more massive. 
Another thing, too, is, you know, since it's the center of the galaxy, you know what that, that means? It means everything in the galaxy is revolving around it, including us. We're going around that supermassive black hole. Okay? So, the thing about the black hole is, you know what? Nobody can see it. If you looked there to Sagittarius tonight, you won't see it. You can't see it. Because it's black. It's invisible. Nobody can see it. The only reason why we know about it is we, because we've peered in with our big telescopes and we see these stars just swirling around it really fast. And if they get too close, they'll get sucked in. Okay? So, they're so massive, their gravity is so great that nothing can escape them. Not even light. That's why they call them black holes. They pull everything inside of them. And, you know, something. some people are like this. You know, I, I, I read this illustration in a book, I think, about 40 years ago. I think it was uh, uh, Charles and Francis Hunter's book. It said, t compared some people to be, being black holes. They're so selfish, their eyes are just turned inward, and what? They don't have any light. They're so selfish and self-centered, their inward eyes are only in on themselves. And they cannot see the needs of others. You know anybody like that? Completely oblivious to the needs of everybody around there. Now, being a black hole is the opposite of Jesus' word to us. What did Jesus say? Matthew chapter 5, verse 14. He said, you are the black hole of the world. No, he didn't say that. He said, you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all that are in the house. These black hole people, you know, they, they put the basket all over them. You know, nothing can penetrate. Nothing can escape from there. But Jesus said we're not to be like that. We're to let your light so shine before men that they will see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. The end result of good works in your life is not to draw attention to yourself, but it is to glorify God in your life. They ask you how, why you're so filled with joy and peace and have such love in your life. Or you're always doing good works for people, taking care of needs. And you tell them, it's because of Jesus who lives in me. The end result of good works must always be to glorify the Father who is in heaven, not glorify ourselves. Now, the cure for these people that are, have this black hole attitude is this. He writes on page 19 of his book, The moment you are conscious of that touch of envy, criticism, irritability. You know, what are these sins talking about? They're talking about a, a, black, a person that's getting these black hole in, attitudes. Whatever it is, ask Jesus to cover it with his precious blood and cleanse it away and you will find the reaction gone. 
your joy and peace restored, and your cup running over. The more you trust the blood of Jesus in this way, the less you will have these reactions. Suppose we are irritated by certain traits in someone. It is not enough to take our reactions of irritation to Calvary. We must first be broken. That is, we must first yield to God over the whole question and accept that person and his ways as God's will for us. Do you ever th think of it that way? Somebody does, does you wrong and you get all bent out of shape and everything. Instead of blaming the person, think about it as maybe God's will for you. God is testing you. Somebody once said that uh, uh, life is 10% what happens to you and 90% about how you react to it. And then he goes on and says, let's not keep mourning over it, you know, what had happened between you and that person. Let us not be occupied with ourselves. Let us look up to our glorious Lord and praise him that he is still victorious. If something like that happens, God wants you to get victory over it. He doesn't want you moping around and feeling sorry for yourself or becoming embittered towards that person. You know, when people do us wrong, we either become bitter people or better people. The choice is ours. And I shared with you this little uh, saying here. I really like this. You know, when people, uh, you know, do, do us wrong, you know, it's so easy to curse them and nurse a grudge and rehearse that over and over again. But if you give it to God, you won't curse it. You won't nurse it. You won't rehearse it. Instead, you disperse it to God and he reverses it and you get the victory. Amen? Is that what you want in your life? Learn to react to people the proper ways, brothers and sisters. Now, I want to conclude with this thought. No discussion about cups running over is uh, uh, that is, the infilling of the Holy Spirit is complete without remembering Paul's word, words in Ephesians chapter 5.18. Ephesians 5.18, Paul admonishes the Ephesian believers, And do not be drunk with wine, in which is excess or dissipation, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, I've heard some Bible teachers, I think it was Chuck Smith and also Mike McIntosh, who is uh, Chuck Smith's disciple, and he said, well, that should be translated, be ye being filled with the Holy Spirit. You know, I scratched my head and I said, what does be ye being filled with the Holy Spirit? You know, I, I was an English teacher there, a couple of universities in uh, uh, Thailand, you know, and I can't hardly understand that. Be being filled. It, it, it becomes clear when you consider this is a present tense in the Greek language. A present tense in the Greek language always denotes continual action. So what Paul was really saying there 
is be continually filled with the Holy Spirit. Or better yet, maybe keep on being filled with the Holy Spirit. That's God's admonishment to us. And not only being filled, but being filled to what? To the brimming over with the Holy Spirit. Why do we need to be continually filled? Can't we just be uh, filled just one time? Well, the answer is no. My mentor, the late Dr. Walter R. Martin, used to say, your leaky vessel, you know. Not only are you a leaky vessel, but your vessel keeps on getting defiled with self and with uh, uh, sin. So you've got to keep on cleansing that cup. You have to continue to allow it to be cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Some people will say, well, you know, I thought that we only just got filled with the Spirit one time. No, that's not true. Because the apostles and the early disciples got filled when? When did they get filled with the Holy Spirit? On the day of Pentecost, right? Were they just filled one time? Well, if you look at uh, Acts chapter 4, the church was at a crossroads here. They got called in front of the Sanhedrin. They said, you're not to preach or teach anymore in the name of this man. So what, what did the uh, uh, disciples do? Did they just cower and feel sorry? Oh, they're persecuting me. No. Their thoughts turned to God and the message to Jesus and the message that he gave them to preach to those people. And they got together, called a massive prayer meeting of the church. And you can read about the uh, prayer that they uh, uh, prayed from uh, Acts chapter 4 through verse 31. And I love the conclusion. And when, it says in verse 31, and when they, they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together. They experienced a mini earthquake. The Holy Spirit was shaking them up. They were shaking where they were assembled together. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit of God. And they spoke the word of God with boldness. You know, I once preached a message on this called the baptism of boldness. They didn't pray that the persecution would leave them. They prayed that they would be changed and transformed and that they would not have this spirit of fear and timidity anymore. And it says they spoke the word of God with boldness. So they were filled again because they felt that spirit of timidity creeping in and that spirit of timidity was sin. And they repented of it. If you go through the uh, prayer, you know, they talked about, Oh Lord, you are God. You're the maker of heaven and earth. You're bigger than the Sanhedrin. You're bigger than this whole world. You've got everything under control. God knew all that, of course. 
But the thing is, did they know it? Did they believe it? And if they believed it, were they going to act on it and speak the word of boldness? And God gave them that infilling as he cleansed them of that spirit of timidity. Hallelujah. The same needs to happen in our lives. In all these different things I've been talking about today. Amen? Amen. Hallelujah. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we uh, come before you, and uh, Lord, we need that infilling. Lord, we need our vessels cleansed, Lord, because our vessels are continually getting dirty. Our vessels are continually getting filled up with our own self uh, pity and self-righteousness, our self-worry uh, uh, and our that spirit of fear and all kinds of other defilements are continually trying to creep in. And uh, But Lord, we just stand before you today. We come before you and we just ask that you would cleanse that cup, Lord. We can't cleanse it on our own. All we can do is empty it out of our own self-will and let you cleanse it and let you fill it to spilling out to brimming over with your Holy Spirit. Hallelujah. We praise and thank you, Lord, that you give us the strength that we need uh, for that to happen. And uh, just bless each one of us now. Help us to go forward, Lord, and remember this, Lord God, that our cups would be uh, running over, Lord, even as uh, uh, David described. So bless this time, Lord, and thank you for being with us. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Hallelujah. Okay.